Welcome to The Field, a podcast of targeted trainings for child welfare professionals. I'm Cassie Gillespie. Join us as we chat with local experts about topics that are pertinent to child welfare in Vermont. So good morning or good afternoon, depending on when you chose to press play. I'm Tabitha Moore, and I will be your host for today's episode on harm reduction. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Aaron Stewart. Dr. Stewart is the Chief of Psychology at the University of Vermont Health Network for the Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital. Welcome, Erin. Thanks, Tabitha. I'm so glad that you joined us today to talk about harm reduction. Thank you for being here. So let's start off with the basics. What is harm reduction? Yeah. So harm reduction is a set of principles and guidelines that we perceive risk um, or, or people that have risk Um, We perceive them in a different way. A harm reduction um, model is the way we perceive our cases uh, so that we can reduce risk. Okay. And you mentioned principles. Can you go into that a little bit? Tell some of the principles. Sure. And the the other thing that I think is important um, when you're starting to learn about harm reduction is that it's a shift in perspective and mentality. So we have always perceived risk in the psychological field as something we need to act on. And harm reduction gives us the tools that we need to help our consumer or our child or our caseload. We give them tools so that they can then themselves empower themselves to reduce their own risk. So it's, it's a perception or a mentality that we approach a case with so that we don't believe that we have to do to them, that we rather can help them do to themselves what they want to do to make the life that they want to live. So um, it uh, harm reduction helps us to promote healing and to promote change, but not by forcing somebody to do that, rather by um, asking them to make the choice to do it and then giving them the tools to do it. So just contextually... This came about in the substance abuse uh, world, in the substance abuse world in the 1980s, where people started determining that the models that we were using to enact change on someone else wasn't creating lasting change. And it wasn't creating change that was uh, feeling comfortable. It was mandated uh, change which we know to from the literature and the research uh, does not stick. Um, something that's forced and mandated, we know doesn't help people change their lives for good. It helps people comply. It gets compliance for a short period of time. And so harm reduction is, came about in the substance abuse literature because what we were finding is that people weren't staying in recovery and weren't staying clean and sober for any length of time if they were forced to do so. And so the harm reduction model um, was a public health strategy that was developed initially for adults with substance use, and it has grown over time to uh, include risky behavior reduction, um, it has enact, we've enacted it using operating motor vehicles under the influence reduction, teen pregnancy reduction, drug and alcohol use reduction, cutting um, reduction, all of those uh, risky behaviors that were so hard to treat by mandating people to stop. When we apply the harm reduction model, it is uh, much more lasting and much more comfortable to the people that we're helping because we empower them to do so. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the principles. 
The principles initially in the 80s were that a harm reduction professional accepts that illicit and illicit drug use is part of our world. And we attempt to minimize its uh, negative impact rather than forcing people into abstinence. So it's a recognition that drugs exist and that people will use them rather than trying to get to a model where there will be no more drugs. Because when we perceive drug and alcohol usage in that way, what we do is push it underground, which is what we do to risk behavior when we mandate compliance, is we just teach people to get better at secreting their risk rather than reducing their risk. So the first principle of harm reduction is that we agree that the risky behavior exists and that we want to reduce it rather than abstain from it. The second is that we understand that risky behavior and specifically substance use and substance abuse is complicated. It's a multifaceted behavior that has many, 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 many components which add up to risk. It's not a simple equation whereby I approach somebody who has substance abuse problems and I tell them to stop and they stop. That's not how risk works. People don't self-harm because uh, it's a simple equation. They self-harm because they've been living in complicated neglectful and abusive environments with histories of generational substance abuse and generational mental illness and generational poverty and generational oppression, um, they cut because of that. And so the response cannot be simple. It has to be complicated and creative. So that's the second principle. The third is that it establishes quality of individual and community life of well-being, meaning it's a holistic approach not a one-to-one -one approach or a system-on-person approach. It's a holistic approach where we value uh, that people desire humanity and, and personal value and recognition, and that that is the approach to healing, that people need community, they need connection, they need relationship in order to heal, and that a simple manualized-based treatment will never work in a lasting way for recovery. Um, and healing. The fourth principle is that it ensures uh, the person that is experiencing risk um, have a real voice in their healing and recovery. Again, harm reduction is not I will enact something on you. It will. It is that I will take you as my partner and ask your opinion on how you need to heal. And that is the plan that we will we will build. And as we go through this. Um, podcast and discussion, what I hope you will hear over and over is that the first stage in building a harm reduction plan is asking the person who's engaging in risky behavior um, why and how and how much and when and all of those important questions so that they can build their own recovery model. Um, another principle is that because the person who's engaging in risk is the major piece of the puzzle, we have to center them in their healing, is that they have to be the center of the harm reduction plan. Harm reduction recognizes as a next principle that realities of poverty, class, racism, social isolation, past trauma, sex-based discrimination, and other social inequalities affect people's vulnerability and encourage them to engage in risk. These societal unfairnesses that we continue to propagate continue to breed risk. 
And so without understanding that and without that being a principle of harm reduction, we miss the main reasons why oppressed populations and people of minority status and people of vulnerability engage in risky behavior. And we just tell them that they should have more willpower and we just try to force them to be safer. And it's just not an accurate or true story that people with willpower um, are safer. It's, it's a true story that people that have been harmed and hurt the most often harm and hurt other people. And we have to understand that. The last principle that I think is really, really important is that it does not, harm reduction does not attempt to minimize trauma or tragedy in healing and recovery. It centers trauma or tragedy and oppression when you are building a safety plan with somebody so that they can feel validated and cared for and recognized as the first step in their recovery. Um, those are the principles, Tabitha, and they are certainly wordy and um, complex, and they will require people approaching harm reduction to ponder and get with themselves about how they feel about recovery and how they feel about trauma and, and oppression. Yeah, I mean, everything you said there was so powerful. And it really was uh, a massive shift in the way that people practice, um, whether it's substance abuse treatment, or we're talking about child welfare here today. I just want to make sure that I um, that I reiterate some of the more powerful points that I just heard you saying. And I heard um, that harm reduction is a lens. It's not an intervention. That's right. It's holistic. It's empathetic. Client or patient centered. You're you're really meeting people where they are, and you're doing it with rather than two or four. And I really appreciate the emphasis on the cultural context and the fact that um, issues of oppression play into how people um, end up harming themselves. Because I think it's really easy for people to forget, especially people who are in majority positions or maybe don't struggle with these sorts of things, um, to not understand why folks do these. Uh, do these things or, or have these sorts of behaviors. And the last piece that you mentioned, and I really hope that uh, you can kind of go into this a bit, was um, it sounds like it's really trauma-informed. So um, could you talk a little bit more about the relationship betwe between trauma and harm reduction? Sure. Um, when I was a baby psychologist, I would often ask people to teach me tools to do to people. Because when I was coming through graduate school, the major learning that they were giving me was that I was going to go out and be an expert and that I was going to go out and have the answers for teaching people how to live the lives that they want to live. And when I came into the prisons and jails, I learned really, really clearly that there's no difference between me and somebody who is an inmate. It's just that they got less lucky in the deck of cards that they got dealt and they got caught. So that was the only difference. There is no difference in humanity or integrity or values in the majority of the population. And so I have worked really, really hard to learn from mentors and experts about how to overlay principles and guidelines rather than to force tools or tricks on people of how to change their lives. And so harm reduction and restorative justice, both of those models I originally approached with, what can you give me to do to people? And both of those models have become intertwined in the way that I perceive the world. 
which is that people have free will. They have the ability to make decisions about how, how they want to live life. And that rather than an expert, I just get a lo- the chance and I'm honored to have this to walk alongside people while they make choices about how they want to live. And I can, I can perceive them in a way that heals them rather than I can treat them in a way that heals them. And so um, this is a really important uh, paradigm shift that has occurred with harm reduction in the 80s and restorative justice even more recently in Vermont, um, where we walk alongside folks that have had very, very difficult and challenging and traumatic lives, and we treat them in a trauma-informed way. And by trauma-informed for me, my definition is I assume that everybody that I'm working with has had substantial trauma, and I treat them in that manner. And by treat them, I don't mean I treat them psychologically. I mean, I treat them as a um, counterpart to their life experience. I am with them as though they've had substantial trauma. And harm reduction takes into account that the people that are most harmful and most hurtful have been most harmed and most hurt. And that challenges the way we perceive um, dangerous and violent people because we've been told for a long time that they are dangerous and violent because they so choose to be, or they've been taught to be and they enjoy that behavior, or um, that that is who people are. And my experience um, has been that all people can be dangerous and violent if they have to in order to survive, and that those patterns of behavior become um, risky and dangerous and maladaptive behaviors. Mm-hmm. So yes, 100% trauma-informed in that in order to apply harm reduction to cases that are risky, we have to believe that they are good on the inside and that they have been hurt and harmed. And we have to undo that hurt and harm. And I have said many, 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 many times that relationships and people hurt and harm others and that relationships and people are what heal others. And harm reduction and restorative justice are those practices and principles that we overlay in order to help people rise up on their own. So what does that mean for, for folks doing child welfare work? What, is, what does harm reduction look like um, in the field? And, and how do people shift to this, this way of thinking? I mean, I think about the number of child welfare workers who've seen parents, um, you know, either relapsing with drug or alcohol addiction or in terms of some of the harmful behaviors uh, that they're doing um, to their children. Uh, what does it mean for workers? Yeah. So the first thing that I think it means is that we have to get a hold of our own feelings and judgment about other people's life trajectory. So one thing that I've said so many times across the state is that opiate relapse from the numbers looks like somewhere between seven and 11 times people relapse. Trafficking looks like somewhere between 11 and 14 times people go back into the lifestyle. And so If we are harboring a substantial amount of judgment about relapse um, and not having the perspective that relapse is a part of recovery, is the next step in your recovery is to relapse and then regain your sobriety, that it's not about how many times you fall down. It's about how many times you get back up and the way that you get back up and shortening the duration of use. Um, If we don't have that perspective, we can get to a place where we are burned out and frustrated by relapse and risk. Mm. And if we don't handle our own judgment and our own feelings about the fact that 
it is not an us and them thing where we are clean and sober and the people we serve are not. Mm -hmm. That is not a true story that we tell ourselves. The true story is that right now in our life, maybe we're not using and that right now in their life, maybe they are using right now in our life. Maybe we're not cutting right now in their life. Maybe they are cutting right now in our life. We're not domestically violating against other people, but right now in their life, maybe they are. Mm -hmm. This is a phase thing. This is a trauma thing rather than a I'm a better human than another person. And so what it means for DCF workers who apply harm reduction is that it means that we have to be doing our own therapy. We have to be inserting pleasure and joy into our own lives. We have to be caring for our own mental health and wellness so that we can approach risk as it actually is, mm. which is that it is risk rather than choice. And so if we can do that in our mind, we can switch our mentality, we can switch our perspective, we can switch our humanity and turn it back on so that all of us have need for humanity, integrity, and trauma-informed care. We can approach these cases in a much more calm, focused, disciplined way rather than an emotional or um, risk prevention way. Mm -hmm. So- Two of the things that I heard very clearly from you, um, one was about self-examination, um, this idea that we need to understand our own values and our maybe our biases, definitely our biases, and how that impacts how we see the, the people we work with um, and how much um, patience that creates or empathy, going back to one of the earlier principles that we have for them. And then the other thing that you mentioned was this concept um, essentially that behavior is fluid and changeable. And it's not a matter of static identity, like I am uh, not uh, a drug abuser, you know, it's not part of who I am, and you are, versus this is something that's happening right now, that these things could potentially change, we don't know what the future holds. Um, and, and that really sounds like it creates a sense of humility, and I dare I say, cultural humility. Yeah. So, so I'm really glad you summarize it in that way. The first thing is that the fluidity of behavior if I did not believe in that, I would not be able to come to work and work with violent and aggressive and persistently and chronically mentally ill folks because I would not have any hope. I have a substantial amount of hope because I've seen people recover from absolute tragedy and absolute atrocity that should have killed them from the amount of pain, the excruciating amount of pain, but with a harm reduction model where you take it step by step by step and reduce it rather than stop it, our brains and bodies are built in a way where we can take bite-sized change in a far more um, systematic way than we can take a requirement that we must abstain or stop from something. And we all know that. We all know that from our own personal lives. The humanity in this is that we all already know this for ourselves, is that when you give somebody a bite-sized change, they can um, approach it and address it in a far more calm manner. That's why we break down goals and objectives. So yes, behavior is incredibly fluid and it has to do with the environment that you're in and how you feel at that moment. The second thing is regarding self-reflection. In a harm reduction model, the first step of that self-reflection is to be honest and true to yourself about what you are judgmental and biased about 
and to address that and to put accommodation in for yourself and to figure out a supervision and consultation plan where you are not up against something that you are requiring somebody to comply with. Because what we know is compliance doesn't stick. And so we have to deal with ourselves and figure out our own needs and wants. So for example, before I had children, I often worked with people that had dangerous sexualized behaviors and their target population of interest was children. And um, after having children, uh, I am in constant state of self-reflection, both in my own personal therapy, but also as part of my daily uh, practice of mindfulness is how am I doing? What are my tender spots? What am I struggling with? What am I judgmental about? What am I biased about? And I've had an increasingly hard time working with people that have dangerous sexualized behaviors toward young children. And so part of my harm reduction model that I apply to myself in on behalf of my clients is that if I get a case where I'm asked to build a, a harm reduction plan or a treatment plan for somebody who has dangerous sexualized behaviors towards zero to three-year-olds, I ask somebody else to take that case because I am not currently capable of being as non-judgmental as human, as kind as I want to be and where I need to be for their own healing. And that involves honesty. And it's a good practice because harm reduction also involves a substantial amount of transparency and honesty for the people that you're serving. And there are moments in time where we cannot serve everyone and be everything to everyone. And that's part of the model. I think that's, you know, such a critical and powerful point. And I'm so glad um, that you're giving a personal example. Um, I think sometimes we don't think of ourselves, you know, a, a lot of folks think that, you know, we don't think about ourselves in these contexts. And so it's really nice to have you um, provide that level of um, vulnerability for our listeners. My wonder to you is, and I can almost hear folks in the, in the workforce saying this, what about when we can't transfer cases? Yeah. What about when we have to, no matter what, this is a case we have to deal with. And I know both of us have had situations like this. So I'm really excited to hear what you, what you say, but what about, you know, when you know what your personal values and biases are? Um, and I'm so, again, another reason I'm so glad to hear you say it is because a lot of times people have this mentality that it's about being not biased rather than understanding and working with them. So what do you say to the workforce, to the people who have cases where it is so, uh, personally painful or difficult for them? How do they how do they mitigate or how do they deal with that? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I supervise a lot of people. And so this often comes up and it comes up for me, too, because in locked units, I can't always stop working with people that trigger my tender spots. Um, sometimes I can, but sometimes I can't. And um, it's important to self-reflect and also know that there will be times where you have to or I have to work with and build a harm reduction model for someone who even being near them and hearing the traumas that they are putting on other people is incredibly triggering and traumatizing. And so how do we care for ourselves when we have to do that? And I would say it's a concoction of three things. The first is um, the first two are important with harm reduction, generally speaking, and I'm glad we're getting to them. The, the two of the most important tools for doing harm reduction plans well are one, how you document, and two, how you gain supervision and consultation. We cannot do harm reduction in systems with policies and procedures up the wazoo unless we are documenting well 
and getting supervision and consultation. We will run into a brick wall where somebody says, you can't build that plan. You can't be that creative. You can't give that much leeway toward risk. You're encouraging risk. People will say that. And the answer to your, the, those statements are, if I document well and I get supervision and consultation, then I can build these harm reduction plans and I can do it in a way where we will reduce risk, not mitigate risk. And so my first answer to your question is when you're up against a case that or a human that really hurts you by working with them, that we have to get really good at non-judgmental documentation and we have to get really good at reaching out for supervision and consultation. And I do both of those when I'm working with people that I feel like are really painful and hurtful to work with. And the third is that I engage in my own personal therapy. And that is formalized therapy, what people think of when they hear the word therapy, that's weekly talk therapy, but it is also a self-care plan that is therapeutic for me that I engage in every single week. And that is, I listen to the music that makes me feel good. I listen to the podcasts that make me feel good. I play with my kids and that makes me feel good. I get outside and that makes me feel good. There is a therapy and a therapeutic experience of self-care that we have to engage in when we're dealing with people that have extreme risk. And when you're dealing with risky people, they're going to engage in risk. That is part of the world that we live in and it's part of the, the field that we work in. And so we have to validate that for our brain and bodies. Our brain and bodies need to hear us say, this is a risky job that is risky for my mental health and risky for my self-care and I am going to actively engage in a harm reduction model for myself of therapy and therapeutic experiences to, to bring down that level of emotion and level of trauma. And so I am a huge proponent of giving my employees and my supervisees the opportunity to engage in therapy, whatever that means for them, so that they can deal with their feelings and re-engage in those cases. Um, and to land that just really quickly for you, um, I will use another personal example that I cannot get away from. And that is that in my personal life, um, I experience a lot of familial uh, oppression and racism. And I also work with in the North Country in Plattsburgh, a substantial amount of people that are actively and honestly and poignantly racist. And it is very difficult to get away from it. And it is true in Vermont as well that I intercept a lot of people that are very, very racist. And it happens all the time in my personal life. It's very painful and tender. And I can't get away from it, nor do I want to. I want to engage in that work. And so in order to do that, I have to self-care in order to take care of myself. So that's an example of something that I wouldn't get away from because I don't want to and I can't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you, Erin. Um, you started talking about uh, a harm reduction model. Do you want to go into that a little bit more? And, and yes. know, kind of okay. So a harm reduction model is if we use all of those principles that I went through at the very beginning, whereby the person that we're trying to help is centered in the plan, and their own uh, way of living or the desire that they have of the way they live is centered in the plan, that we validate that risk is a part of this world and that risk doesn't stop, it just decreases. If we center all of those principles 
then when we build a harm reduction plan, we are looking for a decrease in risky behavior rather than a stop. And so we have to build goals and objectives with the person that makes sense to them, that they're engaged in, that they have their own voice in, and that are simply a de-amplification of risk rather than I'm telling you, you have to stop. And so that looks all different in all different cases and in all different risk behaviors. But I'll give an example. Um, there are many, many times that I've worked with an active self-harmer where we've built a harm reduction model that they have to cut with clean blades. They can only cut to certain levels of depth and they can only cut after they tell somebody that they're going to. And to many of you's ears, probably, that sounds like I'm condoning cutting behavior. It sounds like I'm encouraging cutting behavior. But what I'm doing is I'm putting safety mechanisms around cutting behavior to reduce the risk of disease transmission, of bleeding excessively, of uh, infection, of, of sharing um, methods of cutting, of contagion. I'm trying to reduce all of those really serious risk behaviors that come along with risk. And so that's an example of a harm reduction um, application. Um, and uh, we are really well-versed in knowing how harm reduction helped in teen pregnancy because we started talking in middle schools about um, ways to keep yourself safe rather than abstinence. And the numbers don't lie. So when all of those models came out, we saw a drastic reduction in teen pregnancies, except in the state in the states that were practicing abstinence teaching. And so it is important to know that these models work, but you have to finagle and be um, outside the box and creative when you're thinking about what you can do to reduce harm. Mm. And so it sounds like it starts with, what is my perspective on this? What are my beliefs and my values um, in that example, like about sexual education and you know people under the age of 18? And then how does that influence the kinds of things I say and do with people? And is that actually useful? Is it actually going to reduce harm or is it going to drive the behavior underground, as you said, um, and, that's correct. and using that? Yep, that's correct. And I'll give you another couple of examples that maybe land for people. So we had a group of folks, um, trafficking perpetrators in Chittenden County that um, had survivors and victims trained that the only person that could inject them with their opiates was the trafficker. And so we engaged in a harm reduction model of teaching human trafficking survivors and victims how to inject their own opiates. And it sounds uh, wild and crazy to somebody who believes in abstinence, but what it did is empowered them to be less controlled by their risk. And um, uh, one of my favorite uh, harm reduction models has been to um, advise people that we want to know more when they're on run rather than we want them to stop running away. We want youths to stop running away. We know they're going to run. The principle of harm reduction is that they are going to run. And so the harm reduction model is that we want them to be in more contact when they're on run. We want them to check in in the first 24 hours. We want them to tell us where they are. We want them to tell us how they're taking care of themselves when they're on run, rather than mm. telling them that they can never run away. 
Right. Essentially validating the reality of the situation. Um, and essentially, what is our relative uh, powerlessness to force them into decision making? That's right. Um, That's right. And when I take um, people with me to engage with people that are in crisis, mm-hmm. um, newbies, uh, rookies that are just learning the language of harm reduction, mm-hmm. without fail, um, after an intervention, I debrief with them and they always say to me, I could not believe that you gave that person permission to run or cut or use or all of those things. And we always engage in a conversation of, I'm not giving them permission. I just know they're going to do it. So I'm building credibility with myself, knowing that they are going to engage in those behaviors and they trust me more for knowing that I understand the pattern of risk and the pattern of relapse. Mm. It's it reminds me my parents are coming into my head. My dad always used to say to us, "If you can't be good, be careful." <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of you know it's kind of along those lines. I was like, okay, I, I have respect for that. So I know we're running out of time, Erin. Um, just um, if uh, thinking about you know how we learn, and you know I don't know where people are listening to this. They might be in their car. Maybe their kids are you know screaming in the background. Um, if there and I also know that with learning, we tend to forget most of what we learn. But if there are two or three key concepts or ideas that you want to sear into people's minds, if they're going to forget everything else, what are the two or three big concepts in harm reduction that you want our listeners to uh, be inspired by and just remember, especially those folks who are going to be joining us um, later? I think we're in June for our um, um, online learning uh, follow up to this. So what are the two or three key concepts that people should keep in mind? The first concept that I want people to keep in mind is that harm reduction plans work to reduce risk over time. And the second is that in order to make them work, you have to document and consult very, very well. You have to get those chops going in terms of consultation and, and get your documentation going. And the third is that in order to deal with being the person that holds the accountability for a harm reduction plan, you have to take care of yourself. And that involves therapeutic experiences outside of the harm reduction experience. And so those are the things I would want you to know. And that there's a lot of information out there for people that want to know more. And where would they go to get those things? Yeah. So if you want to know about the components of harm reduction, I encourage people to learn more about motivational interviewing. And I also encourage people to learn more about the stages of change by Proshaka and DiClemente. So there's a model about the stages of change and readiness for change. And if you learn that and you learn motivational interviewing, you have a good platform for preparing your body and your brain for building harm reduction models. That's the first thing. The second is that there's a lot of groups and coalitions and conferences and um, um empirically validated research articles, mostly on substance abuse, on harm reduction, that you can dive deeply and nerd out online um, if you want to learn more about those things and attend the conferences. SAMHSA, the Federal Mental Health Administration, has um, some good research articles on harm reduction as drug and alcohol uh, reduction plans. And um, there's some good tobacco articles as well. So if you want to learn more, there's a lot of stuff online. Um, And maybe you won't be surprised, but other countries 
have engaged in some systemic harm reduction models that are really interesting. So on the Scandinavian countries and the European countries, Canada has some, and every country has chosen a different sort of harm reduction tactic for a different risk. So you can uh, research some of those too. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Erin Stewart. Thanks for joining us today to talk about harm reduction in the field of child welfare. We appreciate both your expertise and the work that you do every day. This has been an episode of Welcome to the Field with the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership. If you found this podcast useful, hop on over to our website, Vermont CWTP, and check out some of our other podcast topics. Thanks for listening. If you have any ideas about topics that you want us to cover or episodes that you're interested in hearing, shoot us a message. You can reach me by email at cassie.gillespie at uvm.edu, or you can leave us a comment on the webpage where you downloaded this podcast. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. And a special thank you to Brickdrop for composing and recording our music. See you next time.